the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The Select Committee on China holds their first public hearing. We'll hear key portions, including former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. We never gave the Soviet Union the kind of access that we gave to Chinese Communist Party operatives. And former Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger on the threat posed by TikTok. It gives the Chinese Communist Party the ability to manipulate our social discourse. We'll talk to the chairman of the committee, Wisconsin Representative Mike Gallagher. We just want to make sure that we're bringing the whole country along when it comes to standing up for our sovereignty. Congressman Jim Jordan on the news regarding the origins of COVID-19. The biggest purveyor of disinformation is the federal government. Plus, the Supreme Court hears the challenge to Biden's effort to transfer student debt to the American taxpayer. And he knows he doesn't have the constitutional authority to do this. All this and more. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my radio program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me, please, on Twitter at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. We'll start in Washington, D.C. in the first public hearing of the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. If you're a subscriber to our podcast or a regular on my own daily program, you've heard a lot about it. We've covered it a lot because it's so very important for our nation to focus on the Chinese Communist Party. Simply put, we need to wake up to the threat posed by the Chinese. And no, Republicans alone waking up to the threat from China will not be sufficient. On Tuesday night, Florida Representative Carlos Jimenez questioned General H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump, on the nature of the Chinese threat. General, do you think that China poses a greater threat to our freedom and the world's freedom than the Soviet Union ever did. Congressman, yes, yes, I do, because of the, the complexity of it, especially the interconnectedness uh, of China with the global economy and just the scale of, of what they're doing from an economic perspective and from an espionage perspective, I think is, is unprecedented. We never gave the Soviet Union the kind of access that we gave to Chinese Communist Party operatives members of the, of the party, again, based on what we've all been talking about, this fundamentally flawed assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international order, would play by the rules, and as China prospered, it would liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of governance. Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, you know, after World War II, it was pretty clear that the Soviet Union was going to be our adversary, and so we treated them as an adversary, uh, unlike what we did with China. It says, well, maybe if we treat them kindly, they will change their ways. And I'll tell you one thing, you can never assume that with a Marxist regime. They will lie, cheat, do whatever it is to, to gain their way or, or what their goals are. And so I believe that the, the fundamental difference is that uh, unlike the Soviet Union, we're actually funding the instrument of our demise and that we must decouple. 
We have to decouple, but we can't do it alone. We actually have to do it with our allies. And so now that this veil this, uh, has, has kind of been you know, withdrawn and, and the rest of the world can actually start to see what really China is about and what their aims are, do you feel that, that our allies have sufficiently woken up to the reality of what China is and the threat that China, Russia, Iran, North Korea poses to the rest of the world? Congressman, no, no, I don't. I believe the trend's in the right direction, but to use your word, is insufficient. And I think it's important to understand that, that really the, the person that's driving decoupling is Xi Jinping, but on his own terms to create this dual circulation economy. Now, I'm talking about things that I learned from Matt Pottinger, but, but, but it really what, what China wants to do is insulate China from any kind of consequences, financial or economic, associated with Chinese aggression while he cultivates dependencies that he can use for coercive purposes. And I think the a lesson, again, to go back to a lesson of, of the reinvasion of Ukraine, is the rending of economic relationships with Russia, the degree to some, which some companies had stranded capital and investments there. Uh, I think that what we really need is a private sector response to this growing geostrategic danger. Uh, so companies, I think, international companies, need to, to really be, begin to mitigate the risk. Michigan's John Molinar asked Matt Pottinger, former Deputy National Security Advisor under Robert O'Brien, the last National Security Advisor under President Trump, about China's role in our fentanyl scourge. I uh, wanted to ask you, uh, the opioid crisis has killed hundreds, thousands of people, uh, some in my own district. And in your assessment, what is the role of the CCP in contributing to the fentanyl crisis here in the United States? And how should we counter that? Only a few years ago, China was shipping fentanyl uh, directly into our markets, or into the black market, uh, using the mail. Uh, the U.S. made progress during the Trump administration in, in turning back that and also getting China to classify fentanyl as a controlled substance. But what has now happened is that the Chinese state-owned firms and other companies governed by the party state in China are sending the precursor chemicals in mass quantities to Mexico and, and perhaps a few other markets, but primarily Mexico, to the drug cartels to create fentanyl that then washes into our streets and kills tens of thousands of Americans each year. The best that you could say is that the Chinese Communist Party is practicing malign neglect in allowing that business to continue. Uh, they could stop it if they wanted to. And that's been the judgment of uh, many DEA and FBI officials, former officials. Craig Fowler, an admiral who uh, commanded uh, Southcom for us, also pointed the fact that Chinese organized crime has become the number one provider of uh, illicit money flows, money laundering flows. And that has fueled the fentanyl trade. Uh, in, in the U.S. So there are things that we need to do to, to really go after those illicit flows of, of money. Uh, and and the, that means updating our know-your-customer laws and anti-money laundering regulations for banks so that they can identify Chinese organized crime activity and Chinese United Front activity in that, in that area, uh, for starters, sir. Chairman Gallagher got Pottinger to explain as well why TikTok is not just fun and games. 
Mr. Pottinger, few issues have received as much bipartisan attention recently as TikTok. Could you elaborate on your concerns, both in terms of potential espionage, control over the algorithm, as well as potential precedent a mitigation agreement could set when it comes to TikTok and other CCP-directed technology companies operating in the United States? Mr. Chairman, thank you. Well, certainly the, the data privacy issues, are, which have gotten a lot of attention, are a, a real problem for the privacy of Americans, but also for our national security. Already, the Chinese parent company that controls TikTok uh, has been confirmed as, uh, been, as, as having used the app to surveil U.S. journalists uh, in order to try to identify their sources and to retaliate against uh, their sources. And, and that's just one small example of the universe of potential abuse uh, that would be in the offing. Look, there, there's nothing in Chinese law that suggests that the Chinese Communist Party would back off of its legislated privilege to access all of the data uh, produced by social media platforms and other Chinese apps. I, I simply don't think that it's possible to mitigate in a credible way against that threat. But the bigger coup for the Chinese Communist Party, if TikTok is permitted to continue operating in the United States, and if WeChat and, and other Chinese platforms are, are allowed to continue to operate, is that it gives the Chinese Communist Party the ability to manipulate our social discourse, the news, to censor and suppress or to amplify what tens of millions of Americans see and read and experience and hear uh, through their social media app. TikTok is already uh, one of the most powerful media companies in American history, and it's still growing. It's not just dances and, and, and kids stuff. It's becoming a major source of news for a generation of Americans. As we watch China become quite literally more aggressive and more belligerent, the keen eyes in the Politburo are on Taiwan. Chairman Gallagher was a guest on my program the day after the first hearing. What do you think General Secretary Xi's lesson from Ukraine is, if any? Well, yeah, I, I think he's studying Russian failures so that he does not repeat those failures when he tries to take over Taiwan. I think the biggest lesson is that if you're going to pursue a rapid state accompli approach, you better get it right. Uh, and I think Putin was a bit too lazy in his assumptions. I think another lesson is just the importance of having deep stockpiles of munitions. And that's another takeaway of my trip from Taiwan, as we've talked about. You know, the good news is it's an island. It's very hard to conquer. It's very hard to invade. It's hard to do an amphibious landing. The bad news is it's an island. So it's far more difficult to resupply than Ukraine, because Ukraine has a land border that you can send supplies through. So I'm sure she is internalizing all of this. We don't know when he's going to wake up and, and try and make a move. But I remain convinced that we are in the window of maximum danger, that we're not moving with a requisite sense of urgency. And we have to arm Taiwan to the teeth so as to avoid another catastrophic collapse of deterrence like that we saw in Ukraine. All right, I want to finish by asking about the Democrats on the committee, because you've stressed how bipartisan this is. They were full participants last night. I'd like to know who you think made some points on the Democratic side, who you would talk up, who you would direct us to for the conversations that they had with the witnesses and their opening statements. Well, I do think the ranking member uh, was, was great in, in terms of his working with our team to make sure we could pull off the hearing. You know, Richie Torres came with me to the CCP police station in New York 
and then the student roundtable afterwards. And his remarks were fantastic, and his remarks uh, in his questioning session last night were fantastic as well, just talking about the totalitarian threat posed by the CCP and the threat it poses to freedom. Uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, Democrats who I thought were great on economic issues, uh, Jake Oshenklaus, and then Seth Moulton honed right in on the Taiwan question and, and asked McMaster about the lessons of Ukraine for Taiwan. All of those I thought were very good contributions. So this is important for the audience to understand. This is not a Republican-Democrat deal. And I, and I can't stress enough, it's like the Kapoffer Committee on Organized Crime. You didn't know the Republicans were, you didn't know the Democrats are, you didn't care. They focused on the threat. So the more that you talk up Democrats, I know that it, you know, Republicans don't like that sometimes, but we have one adversary, not two, right? We're not fighting the Democrats in the context of this hearing. We're, we're trying to alert the American people. And, and how do you feel that is going? Uh, last night, I thought it went great. I think, you know, if you're the CCP watching, you're probably scared because you see that level of agreement among Democrats and Republicans uh, in terms of recognizing that the CCP is our foremost threat. There are meaningful differences between the parties. I'm not trying to gloss over that. And we're going to have debates and, and some, you know, heated debates at times. But we just want to make sure that we're bringing the whole country along when it comes to standing up for our sovereignty. Coming up, a very late admission from the Department of Energy and the FBI. COVID came from a Chinese lab. The biggest purveyor of disinformation is the federal government. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan when the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Over the course of the past week, both the Department of Energy and the FBI have publicly stated that they believe the most plausible explanation for the origins of the COVID-19 virus was a lab leak in Wuhan, China. It's a very late admission, made with a higher degree of confidence at the Bureau than it did at the Department of Energy, but they agree. The position that the administration had mocked, marginalized, and tried to shut down, well, it's the correct one. We turn to Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, heading the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. He was a guest of my colleague Bob Franz, AM 1420, The Answer, in Cleveland. The Energy Department uh, has issued a report saying they agree with the FBI that the COVID-19 pandemic that has just crushed so many economies around the globe, including ours because of decisions we made on how to react to it, uh, did not come from nature. It did not come from a bat biting a penguin or a pangolin or something else. It was it was in a lab leak. It was in a lab, I should say. Now, whether the leak was intentional or not is something that is unknown at this point, but it did leave that lab. Um, two years ago when you said this and I said this, we were called conspiracy nuts. What do you say now? Yeah, they, and they were they were uh, uh, Twitter and <clears throat> and government were, were looking to take down anything you posted online that was contrary to the quote conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom, when it comes from the federal government, tends to be wrong so often, as is as is in the case uh, with, with this issue. Yeah, I mean, like, look, look, it didn't take a, a genius to figure out. You know, I always say, tell people I'm just a country boy from Western Ohio, but I kind of figured it came from a lab, and that's why we said it. 
Uh, and, and here's the key, though, and we've talked about this. I think Fauci knew from the day one, from the get-go, that this thing came from a lab because he gets an email on January 31st, 2020, that says virus looks engineered. The virus is not consistent with evolutionary theory. He goes into overdrive, organizes a conference call, puts together this paper. It helps edit the paper, all of it to say, no, 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 it came from a bat to a penguin to a hippopotamus to a person, all the, all the BS they, they put forward. So that, that is um, – this is just confirming what we already suspected, and so often, as we've said many times, the biggest purveyor of misinformation is the federal government, and yet they were actually trying to set up a disinformation governance board to say what Bob France and Jim Jordan and others and your listeners and people around this great country could say and couldn't say, which was just how ridiculous this all played out. Will there be a congressional um, committee created, a spe- specific committee to to research the origin of this thing and uh, assign responsibility? Yes. Yeah. It, there, there's a select committee on coronavirus that is continuing. Another Ohioan, Brad Winsford, is chair of that. Um, I get to be a part of that committee a, a, a little bit. Uh, it's, it's part of the oversight committee, but Mr. Winsford is going to be chairing that. And uh, there's going to be a hearing, I think, next does, week. Does that focus on hearing. origin, though? I'm sorry, sir. Does that focus on origin or just on response here and its impact? It, all of it. Now, now when okay. the Democrats ran it and I was on that committee, it was all about beating up President Trump and all kinds of baloney, and they never answered some of the fundamental questions, like all the lies that we were told about this virus. You know, they told us that it wasn't gain of function. They told us that it wasn't a lab leak. They told us it wasn't our tax money. They told us that the vaccinated couldn't get it. The vaccinated couldn't transmit it. They told us mask work, and on and on it goes. So th- that committee didn't focus on any of those sort of fundamental questions and the misinformation we got from the government. But uh, this committee will, in fact, focus on that. Um, let's go back to committee questions, not the uh, uh, the one we just discussed, but your committee, the uh, judiciary. Let's talk about the five big tech CEOs that you are subpoenaing. First of all, what is the goal of those subpoenas? And number two, why only those five? Well, the goal is to get the same information from these companies that Twitter, because of Elon Musk, made available to the world. And we now have, I think, up to 17 different Twitter files, uh, you know, releases and, and media commenting on certain aspects of what what happened. Um, so the, the goal is to get the same kind of information from these tech companies. And our working hypothesis is that if the government was pressuring and priming uh, Twitter to do the things that took place there, they probably did the same with the other social media companies as well. So we want to see that and just see how much this, as Jonathan Turley said, this censorship by surrogate, how much it was uh, really taking place. Because our guess is, uh, our, our thinking is it probably just wasn't uh, Twitter, but these other companies as well. Yeah, and um, you know, you know what I, I really worry about as it pertains to these. And if I have it right, you have the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, and Google, which are all very, very important. Um, so you're, you're you're just assuming that the Twitter executives that have already been called from the former leadership of Twitter were done with them. Well, we we feel like we're getting the information. I mean, we got all kinds of communications between Yoel Roth and Jim Baker. And uh, the, uh, the the other individual who testified, uh, you know, Yoel Roth was head of trust and safety. Jim Baker was chief counsel at the FBI, then became a, a general uh, deputy chief counsel at, at, at Twitter. So we think we're getting that information from uh, from uh, Mr. Musk. And he's been he's been very helpful. Um, I think he understands. He truly believes in the First Amendment. I've had a chance to visit with him. He thinks like you and I do on the First Amendment, which, you know, God bless him. And what he's given us is, is tremendous. So we're hoping, as I said, to get that same kind of information from the other companies. It was in the wake of the pandemic and the recession caused by the shutdown of the economy that President Biden put forward his plan to relieve up to $20,000 in student debt per student. 
It would, in fact, be a debt transfer, with the American taxpayer footing the entire bill. Forbes estimated it would cost us $400 billion. Other outlets estimated that number far higher. The action of Biden was rightfully challenged in court. The Supreme Court heard the case this week. We'll turn to Andrew McCarthy, a guest of Joe Piscopo, on AM 970, The Answer in New York City. The Supreme Court hearing the argument, student debt forgiveness. How will this unfold, do you think, in the Supreme Court, Andy? You know, this is the strangest case, Joe, in that I think everybody knows how it should come out in the sense that there's no way that Biden has the constitutional authority to do this. And he knows he doesn't have the constitutional authority to do this. Congress has to authorize this. They haven't authorized it. So what the case comes down to is the legal concept of standing, which is, are the states and the individuals who are bringing the suit, do they have a sufficient individual injury that they can litigate this? Hmm. So it's like one of these weird things. It's like, um, if you had a if you had a sports analogy to it, like everybody knows how the game should come out, but the question is, are these guys eligible to play? You know, um, yeah. so the, the question is the the issue of standing. Just so people understand what it means is um, your ability to be a plaintiff in court and the court's ability constitutionally to hear the case. Court is limited to to hearing matters that are known as cases or controversies, which means There has to be a legal case where somebody suffered an individualized injury that that can be uh, recompensed or remedied by the legal process. And what that is distinct from is you can't go into court and say, I'm mad because the government is violating the law. You have to show I'm mad because the government is violating the law and it damaged me in a way that's different from the way that it damages everybody else, because the idea is. The courts are the only part of our government that are not answerable to politics. You know, we don't we appoint judges. We don't elect them. And if they get stuff wrong, we don't get to to vote them out of office like we do with others. So as a result, we don't want judges making public policy. Courts are supposed to be reserved for cases where individual Americans have suffered or individual people who have a right to be in court uh, have suffered injuries. And as far as public policy is concerned, we want that made by the political branches and the president so that when they get that wrong, we can vote them out of office. So the issue here is, did these states, are these states really in court saying we're mad because Biden's violating the law? Or can they show that the way he violated the law hurt them in some specific way that's different from others? Coming up, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot receives what George W. Bush would call a shellacking in her re-election effort. When more than eight in 10 Chicagoans vote against the incumbent mayor, then that's a pretty strong indicator that it's time for somebody new. Chicago's Dan Prop from the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us. America is giving away its inventions and technology to China. The Chinese Communist Party intends to surpass us and to be the world leader in innovative technology. The shocking new movie, Innovation Race, exposes the potential Chinese takeover of 5G and the Internet, threatening America's economic and military security. Dominating technology means you dominate the world itself. Watch the movie, Innovation Race, now on demand or DVD at SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. On Tuesday this week, the people of Chicago voted on whether or not to give Lori Lightfoot another term as mayor of their city. 
she lost. Not only did she lose, she came in third, behind Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. Dan Proft is our host on AM560, The Answer in Chicago. He joined my friend Mike Gallagher. Dan, you're smiling today. You know, I think a lot of Chicagoans are probably enjoying this defeat uh, of Lori Lightfoot uh, a little too much. Well, yeah, when more than eight in 10 Chicagoans vote against the incumbent mayor, then that's a pretty strong indicator that it's time for somebody new. And most Chicagoans understand that, you know, last night and today we celebrate for tomorrow, we may be uh, embracing maximum Marxism. And so that's the concern is it's good to issue a repudiation of Lightfoot. But come April 4th, the runoff election, are we going to see things really improve in the city of Chicago? And I'm a skeptic. I, I was reading this is the first time in 40 years a one-term Chicago mayor has been defeated. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a mach- you, you're very familiar with machine towns. This has been a machine town for a long time. Right. And uh, the powers of incumbency are massive uh, for the mayor of the city of Chicago. So you really have to make an effort to destroy yourself the way that Lori Lightfoot did among a body politic that actually agrees with you when it comes to policies. Remember, this was not a repudiation of Lori Lightfoot's policies. It was a repudiation of the consequences of her policies that a lot of Chicagoans otherwise support when they don't connect the dots. But more than anything, it was a repudiation of her personality. She was just so personally off-putting, so personally disdainful uh, that people had enough of her and so they decided to you know, rearrange the deck chairs, but but we're still sailing toward the iceberg. Uh, do, do you share my optimism that maybe the tide is turning as a result of Lori Lightfoot's stunning defeat? No, I don't. Uh, the city of Chicago residents and the politicians in this race running for mayor all support the Safety Act in Illinois, which is no cash bail, decarceration right. of criminals. Uh, anti-prosecution, anti-incarceration of habitual offenders. You had 55% of those who voted yesterday voted for an out-and-proud Marxist of one candidate or the other. So I think there's a long way to go to be able to say that Chicago residents are really interested in a paradigm shift. I think they repudiated Lori Lightfoot because, as I said, she was just so antagonistic personally. But uh, Brandon Johnson, for example, in the runoff is even more hardcore Marxist than Lori Lightfoot was. I I think what you have in the choices, much like you had with Eric Adams in New York, you have people hoping that Eric Adams is going to be something markedly different. You have people hoping that Paul Vallis is going to be something markedly different. But I think what your choice really is, is between somebody who will more orderly manage the decline of Chicago versus someone who will press the pedal to the floor and destroy the city with catastrophic economic and justice policy. I want you to hear a little bit of Lori Lightfoot's concession speech. She also told a reporter apparently this morning who said, were you treated unfairly? And she said, well, of course, I'm a black woman in America. And here's a little bit of her concession speech last night. Four years years ago, I looked into the camera and spoke directly to young people of color who look like me and to every kid who felt like I did um, when I grew up. And I'm going to do that again tonight. I told you back then that anything is possible with hard work. And I want you to know that no matter what happens along the way, 
You should always believe that because it's true. Believe that you can bring about change. Believe that uh, you matter. And believe that you can love who you want to love and do what you want to do and be who you want to be. Well, I would agree with her that anything is possible, including your landslide defeat, Mayor Lightfoot. Can you imagine her saying that the reason she lost now is because she's a black woman in America and she was treated unfairly? Well, I mean, it's it's how she ended is how she started. And it's uh, it's it's the tale of Lori Lightfoot. That's why she got demolished yesterday. She when she won or when she ran and then won, she said, I'm the triple threat. I'm black, I'm gay and I'm female. So she didn't identify herself by her hard work and want people to judge her by her hard work. She wanted to be judged by her identity. And uh, this, and so now she's playing the role of the victim, which is just preposterous given the field and given Brandon Johnson. But, but she, but she's not. But Dan, she's, but she's, she's not, not alone. But she's and, and SEIU and, and all the yeah. public sector unions that play identity politics the same way she does. Um, I just uh, wonder if we're going to get different varietals of the same uh, race hustle. Coming up, uncovered how the media got cozy with power, abandoned its principles, and lost the people. If you are deemed unacceptable by the people on Twitter, by the loudest voices, by the activists, even the activists within the media these days, then you get this backlash. When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Every day we hear news about violent assaults, carjackings, and other acts of crime spiraling across the United States. Washington's answer is to confiscate your guns, but a new book from Regnery offers hope for a better solution. Professional firearms instructor and veteran gun store owner Larry Correa's new book, In Defense of the Second Amendment, pulls back the curtain on Washington's gun-grabbing agenda and how you can protect your rights as well as your family. Yet, In Defense of the Second Amendment, new from Regnery, available at Amazon.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. If you consider all the stories we've covered in today's program, there is no question in my mind. Every single one of them was made worse as a result of how they were handled by our legacy media outlets. Steve Krakauer is the author of Uncovered, how the media got cozy with power, abandoned its principles, and lost the people. He's also the executive producer of The Megyn Kelly Show. Krakauer was a guest on my program. Uh, ideas are either presented as acceptable or unacceptable, and they are either presented with a correct or an incorrect angle. And that really does provide the four square box. Have other people seized on that as the right lens through which to view every story? I have spoken to that with a couple of people. I think, yes, I, I described it as Pascal's wager of woke journalism. Pascal's wager is a, is a very you know, old philosophical uh, term that, that relates to the belief in God. The, the wager is it's better to believe in God than not because it's, you know, the, 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 just the odds are better that, that you might as well do it because the, the belief in God is, is, is better to, to go that direction. So, but with, with journalism, it, it used to be correct and incorrect. Those were really the only metrics that mattered. And I mean, used to like 10, 15, 20 years ago. But now we have this new layer, that, this new axis of you know, acceptable versus unacceptable. And we see this in story after story. You can cover a story in a correct way. You can be accurate. 
But if you are deemed unacceptable by the people on Twitter, by the loudest voices, by the activists, even the activists within the media these days, then you get this backlash and then it gets you to say, well, well, why would I do it anyway? Why, I might as well just cover the story in the acceptable way. Take my chances that it'll turn out true. If it doesn't tr turn out true, we'll just move on to the next thing. Everything moves so fast. And that's really a, a, a hit to the, to the public because story after story, Jesse Smollett, you know, the lab leak. I mean, we could go right Jeffrey down Epstein. the line. Hunter Biden yeah, laptop but, story. Yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Epstein, which I, write, which I write about in Chapter 7. All of these, it's like, just take the easy way out rather than do the hard work and get the story right originally because the backlash from, you know, the social, the cultural backlash is too hard for you as a media organization these days. In Uncovered, you've got the receipts on Twitter. 80% uh, of tweets come from 3% of the users. It's uh, R plus 48, I mean, D plus 48%. And the reveal for me is that editors live in fear of Twitter, which I, I just think is absurd, right? It's just absurd that editors care about what the bubble thinks because they're not selling to the bubble. They're selling to the public if they're doing a good job. So um, I thought that was fascinating. But let me go to my confirmation bias, my favorite part of the book. You cite a lot of okay. problems, geographic bias. You talk about lack of introspection, coziness with power. My favorite part is the laziness and incompetence versus conspiracy theory. And I want to illustrate it this way. How many interviews have you done thus far about Uncovered? Oh, probably, you know, 20, 25 or so. Yeah. Of the 20 to 25, how many people have read the book? <laughs> uh, there have been a, definitely a couple. I, I will say it's very clear there's been a couple, but not, but no, certainly not, not a very large portion, I would say. I put this down to laziness and incompetence. Why have an author on unless you're willing to read the book and engage with the text and come prepared to ask questions, you know, and to read about Eric Wemple talking about uh, this thing or the darkness at noon, the guilt and the purges. I just don't think news people are very curious anymore. They've lost that. Yeah. I'm not going to go talk to Steve Krakauer unless I've read Uncovered because that will be a, a terrible conversation. Don't you find that frustrating? I do. And I, and I have to say, I really do appreciate you, uh, you tweeting out the, uh, your, your live tweeting, your, your reading of it uh, over the weekend. And, and this week, I really do appreciate that. Um, no, I, I think it's great. I, I, I really, the lack of curiosity, I mean, I talk about incompetence and laziness, those are bad, but, but you know, journalists of all occupations should be the most curious people. And I would actually go a step further. I think they should be nosy. I think you should be almost disliked. You should be like a gnat. You should be annoying to the people in power. And yet so often now it's the opposite. And for, for a lot of factors, I think Twitter is one of them. You know, the incentive structure of Twitter is you want to be liked, you want to get more followers and more likes, and that can lead to contracts and book deals. And so, so I get that there's this push pull right now. But the job of a journalist is to be curious. The job of a journalist is to is to be the most curious person in the room and want to find out every secret and every detail to the detriment of your your own sort of personal standing, your social standing. That the the cozier with power that journalists get that live in New York and DC almost entirely when it comes to these corporate media jobs. That's a real problem. And it, and it honestly took me moving to Dallas and moving outside of it. And frankly, you know, stepping back over these last couple of years and writing this to kind of try to see the, the big picture and say, you know, what really went wrong? Because something serious went wrong over the last few years that was not there, even though there was valid criticism of the press 
from, you know, for decades, something major changed in the last few years. Well, what changed, and I think you articulated, is the cell media became much more insular than it has ever been. Now, I spend half my year outside of the Beltway and half my year inside of the Beltway, but prior to 2016, I lived in California from 89 to 2016. I always thought I had a different take on the news because I didn't have this suffocating need to please. Uh, and you don't, nobody wants to fight with their coworkers all the time, but a radio studio, as you've discovered, you, re- you work with a very smart person. Megyn Kelly's very smart, very well trained. She doesn't have to worry about anybody else's opinion of her because she made her bones and she knows what she's doing. And you're doing that, too. But that's not the case in the Beltway or along the Acela Media. They have to worry every day that they're going to get thrown out, purged. Uh, Ratings aren't good. So they go for, I think, the two models are, do you want 5% of the 100%? That's the Hewitt model. I want 5% of everyone in the United States to listen to the radio show. Or do you want 100% of the half percent? Other people follow that model. That model is destructive. You monetize eccentricity. Do you see it changing, Steve Krakauer? Because Uncovered doesn't leave me very optimistic. No, and I do try in the last chapter to lay out some potential solutions. Unions! The media reads it and listens. (laughs) Unions! (laughs) The the, the union comment is really about the idea that, look, the the general staffer in these newsrooms are not going to listen to their bosses. That that ship has sailed. Will they listen to their colleagues? Potentially, and that's one avenue of doing it. I I don't have high hopes. You know, frankly, I think the corporate press, along with really the elite establishment in this country today, is has so much disdain for the average American and just wants to divide us in in sort of warring tribes. They kind of benefit by that. And and from a media perspective, they benefit from that because that's where their viewers are. That's where the lowest hanging fruit is. Just just grab onto the ones that you know are the closest to you because the business model is changing. Just try to just grasp on as we hold on for your life. That's a problem. And that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. I, I think that what we need is a, a country that is, is united in a way that doesn't need the establishment gatekeepers. And I do hope that by laying all the cards on the table, by saying, here's the truth about these stories that we saw, Hunter Biden, Jeffrey Epstein, Lavely, COVID, all of these stories of the last few years, let's get on the same page together because then we really don't need them. We can go to independent press. We can go to places that we trust. Coming up. The Trump addiction is what we saw with the January 6th coverage. It's what we continue to see with, frankly, the way that this the bizarre way that the lab leak theory is still being talked about in the press. Why? Why? Because Trump pushed it. More with Krakauer in the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Georgine Rice. This week in the Christian Outlook, sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. A recent poll indicates that nearly 20% of Generation Z identify as LGBTQ. We are destroying children because of a fad. And in states like Oregon, they want to prohibit counseling for individuals who seek counseling in this area of their life. Speech, prayer, sharing one's testimony, of leaving homosexuality, all of those things are contained within this ban. George Barna looks at the values crisis driving it all. World citizens are far less likely to say that they would fight for the Christian faith. And he points us to the discipleship modeled by Christ. He spent most of his time in the trenches with 12 yahoos. Be sure to join us and visit our website at christianoutlook.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I think we have been watching a gradual decline or a gradual deterioration in general journalistic standards and a commitment to truthfulness and objectivity for decades now. But 
when Donald Trump became the nominee of the Republican Party and then president, it was an accelerant. It was fuel on the fire of the fourth estates burning down. Let's pick up my conversation with Steve Krakauer, author of Uncovered. Now the media got cozy with power, abandoned its principles, and lost the people. I would be wrong if I got out of this without talking about the Trump addiction, uh, because you detail what happened uh, when Jeff Zucker, and I like Jeff, and I like everyone at CNN, I think Chris Licht is going to do a good job turning it around and get bringing it back to the center. But everybody got addicted to Trump. And I still say he's the best interview in America because people listen and he always makes news because he says whatever is top of mind. Best interview in America. I will right. never not agree with that. You, you, but, you did some great, great ones with him, yeah. Well, he's just, he, he's just, you don't have to, you just have to get out of the way. It's not really an art with Donald Trump. Just ask him good questions. But the Trump addiction endures, Steve. Is it ever going to end prior to his departure for higher realms? I, I, I can't imagine it does. I, I, potentially, the only way it does is if the business isn't there, right? I, I think there are three reasons that I lay out in the book, you know, look broadly for why we got the Trump addiction that we saw that was just so disastrous for the media, so catastrophic that eroded trust. One of them was, was business. I mean, he was just so good for business, as you mentioned. I mean, people good for would watch and people would click. Exactly right. So that that's great. Uh, and and if he can, if he maintains that, then we're going to see that again for sure over these next couple of years. It was personal though. Also, I mean, that, you know, Jeff Zucker obviously like you know made Trump and Trump made Jeff Zucker at, at NBC with the Celebrity Apprentice. I mean, this is what's so funny. In two thousand five, not very long ago, Gail King and Jeff Zucker and Katie Couric, they were all at his wedding. I mean, it's it, he was in that world and he became this turncoat. So it became personal as well. But then you have these these people that I believe they are still in these newsrooms and to this day believe this. I, I interviewed uh, with Brian Stelter last week and, and had a kind of a nice back and forth. I believe he believes that he was in an existential fight with a person in power to save democracy. And that's what the press largely believed they were doing. And I, I think that that's completely ridiculous. I think that that's wrong. But if you believe it's, that, it's so absurd at the very least, it's so absurd. It is absurd. Yes. But if you believe that, that's when you need to double down on your standards. That's when you actually have to like dig in and say, OK, we need to convince the audience of this. So we need to hold strong to our journalistic principles. They went the opposite direction. They said, we to meet this threat, we must abandon our principles and instead, you know, go and, and, and just tell the truth. Or, you know, as they would say, that's a big problem. And I don't see that subsiding. I, I really do not. I think we see that. I think that the Trump addiction is what we saw with the January 6th coverage. It's what we continue to see with, frankly, the way that this the bizarre way that the lab leak theory is still being talked about in the press. Why? Why? Because Trump pushed it. And there's just this hangover effect that they can't get rid of. Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with you, Hewitt. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Schubin and producers David Bouchon, Michael Cook, Tim Gantner, Adam Ramsey, Jacob Ordunia, and Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us this week for the Town Hall Review. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.